Welcome to the Grace Community Church Podcast. We are grace for everyone, community for everyone, church for everyone. We hope that as you listen to the message from this past Sunday, that your heart is encouraged and you find yourself being drawn to Jesus wherever you're tuning in from. We are so grateful that you've joined us and pray that you'll be blessed as you listen to this week's message. Hey friends, happy Mother's Day. What a beautiful day to take some time to show our gratitude to the moms in our lives. Whether moms by birth or by choice, by blood or by decision, I'm so grateful for moms. Moms who pour love into children, uh, their own and into others, who reveal the heart of Jesus to these little ones, even when they you know, outgrow and start to tower over us. That, that sacrificial love, you know, the sleepless nights, the, all the praying and all of the worrying, while it doesn't always get acknowledged, it, is, uh, it doesn't go unnoticed. It is appreciated. And so we pause, especially on this day, to say thank you, thank you, and, and we love you. So to all the moms out there, may you be blessed and pampered a little bit today. May you be reminded how much you mean to us. And recognizing that this day is hard for some, perhaps it's the, the first year after your mom has passed away, or, or there's estrangement and strife that lies between you and your mom or you and your kids. Um, or maybe motherhood is one of those longings that's yet to be fulfilled and there's been a, you know, a trail of hope and then disappointment in the attempts. We, we recognize today isn't as full of joy for some people as we would hope it would be. So for all those that find today bittersweet, uh, we see you. God sees you. Uh, may you be comforted in the midst of celebration that surrounds you, that, that even in your pain, you'd find moments to give thanks for the moms around you and know that God walks with you through it all. So we're, we're really grateful for moms today, uh, for the moms in our lives. And so it's the perfect day to wrestle with these difficult words of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, they cannot be my disciple. <laughs> what? Uh, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time and wondering why in the world we would choose a passage like this, especially for Mother's Day, we're in the middle of a sermon series that, where we're wrestling with the difficult words of Jesus. Those phrases, those passages where it seems like Jesus comes out of left field, like, or where he even crosses the line. He causes his listeners to just stop short, you know, stare off in the middle distance, wondering what in the world are we supposed to do with this? Things like sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then come follow me. Or take up your cross daily, which we're going to look at a little bit again today because Jesus repeats this gem more than once. Last week, let the dead bury their own dead. You belong to your father, the devil, is one we're going to cover in a little while. Jesus, this master communicator, often makes these seemingly outlandish statements that would leave his disciples in a state of wonder with the need to wrestle with these difficult words of Jesus. And because we take the call to follow Jesus in this day seriously, we continue to wrestle with those words in 2023. We want to know what it looks like to walk in the ways of Jesus, to follow in his footsteps, to be faithful to what he calls us to. And, and in order to do that, do that, we have to take seriously some of these strange passages and figure out just what Jesus is asking of us today. So today, for Mother's Day, 
Jesus is asking us to hate our mothers. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. We're going to unpack it a little bit here. Come with me to Luke's Gospel. We're in the 14th chapter. Jesus has been uh, preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God around the Judean countryside for a little while now. And, and news has spread about this revolutionary rabbi, that he's been healing people and delivering them. And he's been one who's been teaching with authority. He's been shaking up the system. And so people have begun to follow him, not just the original 12 disciples, but like crowds of people have now started to gather. They, they've seen him raise the dead. They, he, they've seen him feed a massive crowd of over 5,000 people. There's been miracles and healings. The kingdom of God is breaking in wherever Jesus goes. And so people have started tagging along. And every once in a while, it seems like Jesus would say something that would kind of thin that crowd out a little. That he would ask maybe a little too much. He would push just a little too hard and people would walk away. And I, and I imagine this scene to be one of those moments. We jump into the story of Jesus at verse 25 in chapter 14. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost and to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule, ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with the 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, Will he send a delegation? Sorry, if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who don't give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, there's a lot in there. Large crowds were following along and, and he turns to them and begins to teach and he opens with this absolute stunner. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. I can imagine most of the people standing there, at least on some level, want to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, not necessarily one of the original 12, but a disciple nonetheless. A, a disciple is someone who, who simply learns from a teacher, in this case, a rabbi like Jesus. But not just learning that uh, in the sense of acquiring knowledge. We often think of learning as this like predominantly a mental exercise, right? Like we go to a classroom, we listen to a lecture, we try to remember what was taught so that we can spill that knowledge back onto a test paper and hopefully get a degree. That's what we think of often as, as learning. But a disciple was someone who, who followed a teacher and then implemented their teachings in their lives. They, they lived out the teaching. They became like their teacher. So at least a few of the people in this crowd, maybe quite a few of them, wanted to have what Jesus had, wanted to be like Jesus. The 12 disciples were sent out by Jesus to continue doing what he was doing. Jesus was multiplying himself through his disciples. So as they walked with him, they became more loving, more generous. None of them did it perfectly, but they became more like Jesus. That was the point of being a disciple. And so here is Jesus healing and delivering people all over the countryside and people are starting to follow him and, and many of them are becoming like Jesus. How many of them? How closely? We don't know. But 
how many of them were starting to get the idea that like there's more going on here than than meets the eye that this this rabbi there's something significant or something special and so jesus turns to them and says you you want to follow me well if you want to follow me you need to hate your father and mother you need to hate your spouse you need to hate your children you need to hate even your own life now before we just gloss over this and move on to the next part of the passage i think one of the keys to understanding what jesus was saying hinges on our reading of the word hate. What does he mean by hate? Because even in our modern English, we have varying degrees of uses for the word hate, right? Like we say things like, I hate mushrooms, or I hate the maple leaves. Like these aren't the same thing as saying, you know, we hate our neighbor, or we hate that we live in a world where someone with an AR-15 can mow down an innocent family in an outlet mall, leaving only a six-year-old boy in hospital with no mom, dad, and siblings. That we hate certain political stances or political parties or that we hate people. Those are, those are very different levels of hate. Uh, like, I hate having mushrooms on my pizza is not the same thing as saying I hate my next door neighbor. We hate those who perpetrate evil in a world that seem to be able to get away with it. That's a different degree of hate. Uh, hating the color of your neighbor's car is very different than hating your neighbor. And I'm fairly certain that uh, this is the only time that Jesus actually encourages people towards hatred. So we have to dig in beyond the surface here because it's clear he's not literally telling us to like to hate, to turn away from, to to despise, to to you know begin slandering our our families. Because over and over again, Jesus called people to love. He he told them, you know, love one another. This is how people are going to know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, love your neighbors as yourselves, love even your enemies, pray for those that persecute you. So Jesus has to be getting at something a little deeper here. Uh, the, The statement must have been made to maybe shock, but cause them to think a little more deeply. Because every other time that Jesus mentions the idea of hatred, it's directed at him or the disciples. It's that other people will hate because you're a disciple. The world will hate you because of me. Don't be alarmed when people hate you. They, they hated the prophets before you. So, so what is Jesus trying to say? I, I, I think it's, it's fairly clear, but maybe not entirely, that he, he didn't mean that we had to literally start hating our families. Which brings me to a brief aside about how we read the Bible. Like an exclusively literal reading of scripture is, well, it's impossible actually. It's entirely unhelpful to even try to read the whole Bible literally because the Bible was never intended for us to be uh, reading it literally. That's not how the Bible works. That's not what the Bible is designed to do in our lives. There are portions that can be taken maybe um, at more face value than others, can be read maybe a little bit more plainly, but there's a there's still, even with those passages, a great distance that has to be accounted for every time we open the text. First of all, none of us are reading the Bible in its original form. And even if we could, even if we could be fluent in biblical Hebrew and New Testament Greek, Every time we attempt to pull that language into our modern English, we make decisions about interpretation. We make decisions about like, well, it kind of means this, or this is probably what the author is getting at. It's not necessarily a word-for-word direct translation. The original language may have some nuance or meaning that doesn't directly translate into our English. 
It's like when I was pastoring in Carmen years ago, some of the guys would be sitting around the table and they'd be speaking low German. And I didn't understand any low German. I knew like a handful of words. I knew like Matterschlup was like the afternoon nap, right? Um, and I remember one time Vic made a comment and everybody burst out laughing. And so I asked, kind of being left out of the joke, I said, well, what, what did you say? And he said, well, it's not really all that funny in English. Uh, the joke only makes sense in low German. And, and the punchline, which is a bit of a common saying that would be similar to like, oh, you know, don't worry about it or it's no big deal, is a pig won't have puppies because of it. Or something along those lines. I might not be remembering totally clearly, but it was, it was sort of like one of those phrases where I was like, I, okay, I sort of get what they're saying there, but it, it's comical in the Low German. Well, when we read the Bible, it's like they're speaking Low German and we're trying to, oh, what he's getting at is, well, don't worry about it, or it's not that big of a deal. But the direct translation is a pig won't have puppies because of it. When we read scripture, we need to remind ourselves that we're not the intended initial audience. The letters to the church that we find in the New Testament, even the Gospels, they were written to people nearly 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world in a culture that was completely different than our own. So there's, there's a, a bunch of distance that needs to be um, brought closer together as we read scripture. And that's why we do the work of interpretation. That's why we, we think about, well, what could Jesus have been saying? What could he have been getting at? What might the original uh, audience have heard? We have to dig a little deeper than just a literal reading of the text. I get a little nervous when somebody begins the sentence with, the Bible clearly says. Because there are several layers of interpretation that have gone into what we think the Bible clearly says. Because if we take a passage like this literally, or say that the Bible clearly says that we're supposed to hate our father and mother, well then everybody should be disowning their families to follow Jesus wives and husbands should be splitting apart and abandoning children because that's what it means to follow the call of Jesus. And I'm not sure that that's what Jesus was getting at. So what did he mean by hate? Perhaps if we read a couple of different translations, it'll help clarify things. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message uh, renders it this way. He says, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own self can't be my disciple. Okay, that's that's an interesting attempt to maybe soften that language a little bit. I can see how that makes sense, but I'm not sure it really gets us out of the pickle that this passage puts us in. What do you mean let go? Like let go of their opinion and their approval? Do you mean cut the apron strings? Do you mean leave home? Do you mean leave spouse, abandon kids? Like what does it mean to let go? I'm not really sure that this gets us all that much closer to the idea of what Jesus meant by you need to hate your father and mother. The other gospel writers soften the language a little by removing hate and kind of placing the word love on a bit of a sliding scale. In Matthew 10, it says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But that still doesn't really get us out of the jam of what, does, what is Jesus getting at? What does, what does he mean? Because Jesus uses some pretty strong language here, and I think he does so on purpose. Because maybe it is hyperbole. Maybe he just wants to grab their attention and, and tell them how serious all of this is. Maybe he is exaggerated, but he's doing it in order to make a point, in order to create a desired effect. If you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything, even some of your family relationships. It's going to cost you leaving home. It's going to cost you letting go. It's going to cost you. It could mean all of those things that your family relationships, even those ones that are really near and dear to you, they come second. You have to give it all up to follow me. The rest of the passage in Luke 
does help flesh things out a little bit. He says, whoever doesn't carry their cross can't follow me. They can't be my disciple. That you have to like take up your cross. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost your whole life. The, the idea of taking up your cross was walking in his, foot, in his footsteps, of laying our lives down for others. It was this life of sacrifice that he was walking, that he's calling them to live into. It's going to cost you everything. All of your family relationships, everything else pales in comparison to the call of following Jesus. This is going to cost you everything. This isn't exactly the like seeker-friendly soft sales pitch to becoming a Christian, is it? I don't know how uh, Jesus was introduced to you, but oftentimes we try to soften the blow of what it means to follow Jesus by saying things like, oh, well, like when Jesus came into my life, I, I felt this incredible peace and my relationship with my family got better. And, and we, we talk about all the blessings that come with following Jesus. And it's true that for many of us, that's been our story, that when Jesus came into our life, there was a level of healing and wholeness that came that did make everything around us that much better. But not everything gets better. The promise of Jesus isn't that your life is going to be all sunshine and lollipops if you follow him. The invitation of Jesus is to come and die, to lay down your life, to take up your cross. And that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's not the kind of pitch we want to make to somebody if we're trying to show them that the way of Jesus is the best way to live. Unless, of course, that cost is worth it. Unless, of course, the adventure of following Jesus, of laying down our lives, is worth some of the pain, some of the suffering, some of the things that we'll go through because of the joy that we experience when we follow him. Following Jesus means we're walking in his self-sacrificial footsteps. We're, we're giving our life for others. And there is, there is joy, there is hope, there is reward, even in some of those, um, in some of those moments. It's, it's a life where we don't live for ourselves anymore. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our wealth. It's about laying it all down for the kingdom. Following Jesus will cost you everything, is what he says. You may have to move far away from your family. You may have to give up on a close relationship with your father and your mother, or with siblings. You, you may end up saying no to the family business, like the disciples walking away from their fisherman father. You don't think some of those dads were wondering if their kids hated them? Like I can picture Zebedee, the father of James and John, like scratching his head as the boys dropped their nets and started following Jesus. Like I worked really hard to build up this fishing business. So many sleepless nights and treacherous water uh, to build up a life for, for my family and for them that they'd be able to, and now they're just going to drop it all. They're going to throw it all away just to follow this rabbi. Or, or last week we mentioned Peter's mother-in-law being healed. And I, I don't know that I've ever really thought all that deeply about the fact that Peter was married. But how do you think that conversation went with his wife? Uh, yeah, so... Uh, you know, we got things, like, things are going pretty good with us, right? Like, fishing, everything's kind of, everything's coming together. Like, we got, we got a nice little life here. But I met this rabbi, you know, like, you've, you've met Jesus, right? You know who I'm talking about. Well, he told me I should follow him and that I would become a fisher of men. So I think I'm going to go do that. Uh, okay. Like, I can picture his wife being like, so, like, like how long are you gone for? When, when are you going to be back? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Okay, um, what's going to happen with the fishing business? I, I, I don't know. Uh, how are we going to pay for food? Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but I just, I know I'm going to go follow Jesus. So I got to go see you. Like, 
You don't think Peter's wife in that moment might have felt like she had been abandoned or, or even hated? Of course, all of these episodes are speculation, but we can imagine that the calling of those disciples had some pretty significant effects on the families that chose to follow him. Jesus said that it should, it should cost us. It should cost us everything. I love the, past, uh, the question that Pastor Cody asked in, at the end of his message, the first message that kind of kicked off this series where, where we count the cost, where the first time Jesus mentions, like, take up your cross and follow me. The question he asked was, if you woke up tomorrow and you were no longer a follower of Jesus, if you were no longer a disciple, would your life look any different? Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He's telling them that there should be a cost to following him and that the cost is steep. And the same is true for us. Our lives should look different. We should look more like Jesus if he's the number one priority in our lives. We, we should be engaged in the work of his kingdom if, if that's what our life is all about. The cost is steep, but I would argue that it's worth it. But it's steep. Jesus gives the example of building a tower or going to war. He says, like, before you started down either one of those paths, you're going to figure out the cost. Like, do I have enough money to not only build the foundation, but be able to complete the tower? You don't want to go into it without knowing how much it's going to cost. You don't want to go with the 10,000 men up against 20,000. If you realize you start figuring out the numbers and you're like, this doesn't work, I'm going to send somebody along and I'm going to I'm going to ask for peace because I don't want to get into a battle that I can't win. There's, there's some warning there that probably goes a little bit deeper than uh, the example that he's giving. But, but he says, you've got to count the cost. And he says, following me is going to cost you everything. He says, if you don't give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. He's inviting the large crowds to consider the cost. If you want to be my disciple, you have to surrender everything. It's going to cost you everything. Remember last week, Jesus his call was urgent to follow him, right? It was like, you follow me now. Let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me now. You go proclaim, proclaim the kingdom now. You know, the other disciple says, let me first go say goodbye to my family. He's like, no, 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 no. Like anybody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back isn't fit for service in the kingdom of God. You follow me now. Urgency was the issue at hand. And Jesus used some uh, somewhat shocking statements to convey that pressing nature of the coming kingdom. Like, you don't want to miss out. Don't, don't wait. Don't dilly-dally. Like, let's get after it, right? The kingdom is happening now. Go proclaim it. Follow me now. Don't wait to say goodbye to your aunts and uncles. Don't wait until your elderly father passes and all the estate issues are in order. The immediacy of the call, the call of the kingdom, is what Jesus was trying to express. Everything else takes a back seat. This comes first. And this statement of hate your father and mother is doing a similar thing. He uses that word hate to, to shock them into thinking about the severity of this decision. That that same focus and energy we put into hating something, this is how much we need to want to follow Jesus. That that desire has to outweigh every other aspect of our lives. That the kingdom is the most important. It's the highest priority. Last week, we spoke of the immediacy. This week, we speak of the supremacy. That the kingdom of God is supreme. It is the most important pursuit of our lives. Walking in the way of Jesus should be priority number one. This kingdom of love and peace and grace and forgiveness of freedom and deliverance, it's even more important than family ties. It's why James and John left their nets. It's why Peter kissed his bride goodbye to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is our number one priority. And so I guess the question we must wrestle with is, is it mine? Is it my first priority? Does following Jesus and becoming more like him trump everything else in my life? Is my highest goal to be like Jesus? 
Do I put that before any other pursuit? Or does it take a back seat, you know, to the job or to the sports or to the family or whatever, you know, you fill in the blank. Those things that sometimes wanna crowd out our desire to be like Jesus. Have we considered the cost of following him? And have we decided that he's worth it? Have we decided that having his life shine through us is the most important pursuit on the planet? That we see ourselves growing in love and peace and patience and kindness? Are we taking up our cross and following him? Are we willing to give up everything to follow him? I'll close with this. On my desk at the office, I have my grandmother's Bible. And I'm so grateful for the faith that my grandma Ruth had. As a child, I didn't really understand it. You know, she went to a super boring church with written prayers and long hymns and an organist. I now have grown to appreciate a lot of those prayers, but she went every single week if she wasn't working. She, she volunteered, she was super involved, she looked after the books for that small congregation. When I read um, that passage in 2 Timothy, I often insert my grandma's name and my mom's name into that passage as a reminder of the heritage of faith that's been passed to me. Uh, Paul, uh, writing to Timothy, says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, and the Bible says Lois, but I put in my grandma Ruth, and in your mother Timothy's mom was Eunice, but I put my mom Susan. I'm persuaded now lives in you also. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Ruth, and in your mother Susan, and I am now persuaded lives in you also. When my grandma passed away a few years ago, my mom gave me the most recent Bible she was using. And it's nothing fancy. It's certainly not an heirloom. It's just a hardcover NIV life application Bible. But I keep it open on my desk. I use it primarily for devotions, but I also have it open when I'm studying. And one of my favorite things about this Bible is in the margin on many passages, there's some little handwritten notes from my grandma. And it's in her like meticulous cursive. And when I was reading this passage from Luke, I glanced over and found in pencil four simple words. And I probably could have shortened this message significantly if I just used my grandma's four words. And we would have saved us a bunch of time because in my grandma's beautiful pen penmanship were these words, Jesus must be first. Jesus must be first. Th this whole passage, it's, it's not about hating mother and father. It's not about... Um, distancing ourselves from our families. It's not about pushing away. It's about pursuing something greater. It's about not settling for only what's going on in this world here and now, but it's desiring to see the kingdom come, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about putting Jesus first. It's about putting the kingdom first. His grace, his goodness, that comes first. Everything else in life falls in line behind. Jesus must be first. Thanks, Grandma, for the reminder. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to evaluate our priorities in this moment? Help us to consider all that your kingdom promises us and that all, all of the things it requires of us, and that we would surrender to you and your will, that we would die to ourselves and our selfish desires, and we'd follow you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you help us to see those areas in our lives where we've put you second or third or, or maybe even farther down the list and help us to turn our hearts towards your kingdom today in really meaningful ways that we'd be maybe just a little more loving today than we were yesterday, that we would look a little more like Jesus today than we did yesterday, that we would declare like my grandma wrote in her Bible that Jesus must be first. In my life, Jesus must be first. 
Jesus, would you be first in our lives today? For we ask these mercies in your name. Amen. Amen. It's always such a pleasure to, to spend some time with you, even digitally like this with Church at Home. And, and we don't take for granted the journey that we're on together. We want you to know that we pray for you each week. And if there are specific ways we can pray for you or, or connect with you, would you head over to the website, even right now, and just drop us a note? We'd love to walk with you through whatever you're facing right now. And we pray that you have a great Mother's Day and that you sense his many blessings in your life as you take some time today to rest and reflect on God's goodness. And as always, until we see you again, may the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes, the love of God be reflected in your hands, the wisdom of God be reflected in your words, and the knowledge of God flow from your heart that all might see and seeing believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace to you.